is Going On True Crime Fans. I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Today's case was recommended by Lita. So thank you so much, Lita. This is an older case that occurred during a cold Pacific Northwest winter. Right up Daphne's alley. She loves those cases. (laughs) It's my favorite kind. You are right. And this one is both fascinating and disturbing. A lot of mystery in this one. Yes. And I also want to give an exciting little personal announcement. Ooh, look at that (laughs) smile on Daphne's face. You can't see her, but I'm I'm looking at that smile. So I just launched a coffee company. It's called Elder's Coffee. I launched it with my sister, and we have naturally flavored organic coffee. It is really, really good, and we've been working on it for so long, so I'm really excited about coming out with it. But if you want to support, that would be amazing. I actually created a discount code if you want to try it. It's 15% off using the code GOINGWEST. And we have like strawberry scone flavored coffee and their coffee beans, ground coffee, um, coconut lavender, cinnamon bun, and peppermint bark. They're like insanely good. So the perfect flavors <laughs> for this time of year as well, since it's so chilly, you just want to cozy up with a nice, delicious cup of coffee. So go check out Elders. Ah, uh, thanks. Well, let's get into today's case. All right, guys, this is episode 366 of Going West. So let's get into it. In the summer of 1940, a woman's blanketed and hogtied body surfaced in Lake Crescent, Washington, her skin having turned to soap in a strange chemical transformation. After identifying her remains, it was revealed that she was a woman who went missing three years earlier, just days before Christmas. So who really killed her and why? This is the story of Hallie Illingworth, also known as the Lady of Lake Crescent. Hallie Brooks Latham was born on January 7, 1901 in Greenville, Kentucky, which is a small town nestled between Evansville, Kentucky and Nashville in the bordering state of Tennessee. Hallie was the fourth of 10 children born to parents Mary and Finnis Latham, who were a very hardworking family with traditional values. At some point in her teen years, Hallie relocated to the state of South Dakota, though whether this was with her family or for her relationship is unclear. Hallie seemed to spend her whole life chasing love and companionship, but sadly couldn't find a guy that could treat her as well as she deserved to be treated. But alas, on September 26, 1919, 18-year-old Hallie married 26-year-old Floyd Spraker in Davison County, South Dakota. Then about a year later in 1920, they welcomed a daughter named Doris Marie Spraker. 
For one reason or another, her first marriage didn't work out, and Hallie found herself divorced from her first husband by her mid-20s, and with a young daughter to care for, which at that time was a pretty controversial event in her personal life. But she quickly found love again, this time to Donald B. Strickland, who she married on August 8th, 1932, when she was 31 and he was 23. Sadly, that marriage was even more short-lived, and Hallie found herself divorced for a second time. Eager for a fresh start, Hallie headed west for the lush landscapes of the Pacific Northwest, hoping to put her personal life behind her for the time being. It's unclear if Hallie brought her daughter Doris, who would have been in her early teens at that point, with her to the West Coast, or if she stayed in South Dakota with extended family. Because unfortunately for their daughter Doris, Hallie's first husband Floyd passed away in 1931 at the age of just 38. So Doris staying behind with him was not an option. Hallie found herself in Lake Crescent, Washington, which is a picturesque glacier lake known for its fishing and boating, and it's surrounded by hiking trails and a waterfall. Lake Crescent is tucked away inside Olympic National Park on the peninsula just west of Seattle and bordering the Pacific Ocean, so it is practically at the tippy top of Washington State. After settling in, Hallie started working as a server at the Lake Crescent Tavern, which is now called the Lake Crescent Lodge, right along the water. And it was there that she met a man named Montgomery J. Illingworth, or Monty, who, like Hallie's second husband, was younger than she was, this time with an age gap of seven years. That year, which was 1936, Hallie was 35 and Monty was 28, which at the time was quite scandalous. He was employed as a delivery truck driver for a beer company and quickly became enamored with Hallie during his stops at the restaurant. So they got married that summer just shortly after they met and they moved into an apartment together nearby. And neighbors took note of their relationship going bad pretty quickly and reported recurring arguments, even observing frequent police visits to their home. Monty is also remembered as a, quote, ladies' man, and it's believed that he may have carried out at least one extramarital affair in the year and a half that he and Hallie were married. So five months into their marriage in November of 1936, the couple became involved in a fight so violent that police had to respond to the home to intervene. And afterward, Hallie reported to work with coworkers noticing that she had bruises on her face and also on her arms. Co-workers at the tavern recall seeing Hallie with black eyes, and at one point, she apparently even confided in them that Monty choked her and had broken one of her teeth. On Tuesday, December 21st, 1937, 36-year-old Hallie reported to work as usual, finishing her day, and then she left without incident. Now, the following day, she was also scheduled to work at the tavern, but she never showed up for her shift. As time elapsed, Hallie failed to check in with her parents, siblings, friends, or even her daughter. And knowing Monty personally and having seen injuries on Hallie in the past, her coworkers were instantly suspicious of her husband. But Monty claimed that he was just as devastated and confused as everyone else at Hallie's sudden disappearance. He explained to anyone who would listen that she was constantly dangling the threat of leaving over his head when they would fight and that this time, she had finally followed through with it, and that there was just nothing more to it. 
that she was probably fine and had just finally decided to move on. He told her family, friends, co-workers, and everyone around town that Hallie had abandoned him, even going so far as to allege that Hallie had run off with another man, someone that she had met from Alaska. And maybe it was the era, or maybe his story was just somehow that convincing, so months passed with no one really looking for Hallie or having known what happened to her, and Monty sought a divorce on the grounds that Hallie had abandoned him. He took up with another woman, Eleanor Pearson, who, like Hallie, was a waitress at an area restaurant. And when they started dating, rumors swirled that he had been seeing Eleanor before Hallie's disappearance. Though Monty and Eleanor were never married, they quickly moved in together and considered themselves common-law husband and wife. So Monty had quickly moved on, and sadly, neither her friends nor her family seemed to pursue answers in the case of her disappearance. So no one seemed to be looking for her or questioning Monty's recollection of events. So maybe they did believe that she actually had run off with someone, as she seemed to be a hopeless romantic and was kind of constantly seeking love and maybe even validation. And it was also a very different time, so tracking down a missing person, especially if they believe that she had fled to, you know, remote reaches of Alaska, would have proven very difficult. But regardless of the reason, Hallie remained a missing person for years. But then, on July 6, 1940, two and a half years after Hallie vanished, two brothers out fishing on Lake Crescent in a rowboat spotted a large item bobbing up and down in the near distance of the water. It appeared as if a hand was breaking the surface of the water. So curious, they got closer, and beneath the hand suspended in the lake was what looked like a body. But the body had been restrained, bound with rope, and wrapped in blankets. So the fishermen reported their findings to an employee at the nearby docks who joined them to the site of the discovery. He initially thought it was a deer, but was horrified upon further inspection to find that it was the body of a woman. The three men then reached out to the local coroner and the sheriff, Charles Kemp, and the five men worked together on pulling the remains from the water. Lake Crescent was already mirrored in dark history and lore by this point. According to Native American legend, the lake was formed by a giant cannibalistic creature, Seatco, who resembles Bigfoot. When two area Native American tribes, the Squalum and Quailiut, wouldn't stop battling over the area, resulting in mass bloodshed, Seatco broke off a piece of Mount Storm King, which was hovering above the lake. Now, in some versions, it's the mountain itself who broke off the piece to stop the fighting. But in both versions, the rock apparently landed down below in the valley of the battlefield, which stopped the river from flowing and created Lake Crescent. However, it also killed countless warriors from both tribes, dooming them to a fate of being trapped in the lake forever. For this reason, many Native Americans believed that the lake was cursed and refused to go near it, and they also wouldn't dare fish in it. Whether you believe in the legend or not, the lake is shrouded in mystery, with depths of about 600 feet, though some believe it could plummet deeper than 1,000 feet. 
Uh, gives me the shivers. Yeah, I think uh, crater hey, depth. There's a, a lake in Oregon that uh, I've been to many times. It's called Crater Lake, and it's actually two thousand feet deep. Yeah, and that is the deepest lake in uh, the U.S. Yeah, super scary, but also extremely beautiful. Yeah, it is gorgeous. So before sophisticated sonar equipment could be used to test the extent of the lake's reaches, locals referred to the lake as bottomless. Ugh. It also had a reputation for holding on to its secrets, which included the people who perished within its depths. One article penned about the search for Halley explained, quote, The man in the rowboat fishing Washington State's Olympic Mountains Crescent Lake probably knew the legend. The lake never gave up its dead, tradition held. The dead stayed dead. The dead stayed put in this icy lake, fed by the near-freezing mountain streams that bordered it. So, the remains of the woman were brought to the garage of the Christman Mortuary in Port Angeles, Washington, which is about 30 minutes away from Lake Crescent. Dr. Irving E. Cavini, along with medical student Harlan McNutt and coroner assistant Wilbert Stikes, attempted to decipher her fate, and more importantly, her identity. So this case was one of the most unique, perhaps the most unique, that these men had seen in the span of their careers. So because of the temperature of the water, it was really, really cold, she had been fairly well-preserved after all that time. Her skin was still pale and fair, with Dr. Cavini describing it, quote, like marble. And sorry for the next gruesome wording, but basically there was no rotted flesh or scent of decay. Her body wasn't bloated or hadn't taken on much water like bodies normally would after drowning or being disposed of in the murky depths of a body of water, which seemed odd. However, investigators had their work cut out for them as most of her face was missing ruling out an identification via photograph. Potentially devoured by fish or animals, she was missing what was simply described as, quote, the upper part of her face, along with her upper lip and her nose. Her fingers, which had been protruding from beneath the blankets, were also missing, as were her toes, which made fingerprint identification impossible. Before her death, the men surmised that she likely would have been an attractive young woman, weird, around 35 years old, who stood at about 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighed about 140 pounds. She sported auburn hair, which was actually still intact. Other identifying factors were her unusually small waist and a large bunion on one of her feet and scraps of a green dress that she had been wearing when she was plunged into the water still clung to her body. Her feet were bare, and she'd been wrapped in two blankets. She had then been hogtied with heavy industrial manila rope, which was a quarter of an inch thick, and bogged down with weights. But this rope, which was likely what the woman's murderer was employing as a failsafe, had actually been what gave up her body. As this rope began to deteriorate over the months that she spent floating in the depths of Lake Crescent, she was lifted to the surface. Now, ultimately, based on the bruising and the lacerations around her neck, it was determined that she had been strangled. 
She had also sustained hemorrhaging to her chest, proving that she had been beaten before she was strangled to death. But even more shocking than the discovery of this body was the state in which it was found. Her body had saponified, which is a chemical effect that occurs when an oil or a fat is turned to soap after reacting with an alkali. A pathologist hired to offer his expertise on the corpse recalled, quote, The lake has strong alkalis, which work on the fatty substance of the flesh, and with a purely chemical reaction, turn the body into soap. So left in place of her skin was this waxy substance, earning her the nickname of Ivory Soap Corpse. According to the examiners, her skin could be, quote, scooped away like putty. Dr. Cavini later explained, quote, I never saw a corpse like this one before. The flesh is hard, almost waxy. She must be nearly as large as when she went into the water. When asked about the strange method of her decomposition, Sheriff Kemp recalled, quote, It's more like a statue. The flesh has turned to some rubber-like substance. Which is just nuts. I mean, obviously all this happened naturally with the elements that are in Crescent Lake. but And the chemicals and yeah, stuff. But across the hundreds of cases that we have covered and, you know, many of which were found in a body of water, never have we covered a case where someone's skin essentially turned to soap. Yeah, that's I've never, ever heard that before. Usually it's just we're dealing with, you know, regular decomposition. But this is very, very strange. So strange. So... With identification impossible for the time being, the woman was simply nicknamed the Lady of the Lake. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Sometimes Daphne and I are doing research for Going West, and we subscribe to different newspapers from all around the country, and then we forget to unsubscribe. But that's exactly why we love Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You'll be able to see all of your subscriptions in one place, and if you see something you don't like, Rocket Money can help you cancel it in just a few taps. It is seriously that easy. 
And that's why Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things that you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash going west. That's rocketmoney.com slash going west. rocketmoney.com slash going west. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Do you want to earn cash back while you shop? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out Rakuten, especially because this week, May 6th through May 13th, Rakuten is having their biggest cashback event of the year with 15% cashback at hundreds of stores. Rakuten is the shopping platform to use so that you can save big while you shop. They're partnered with over 3,500 stores across all categories, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, travel, dining, and so many others. Some of our personal favorite participating stores are Ray-Ban, Hydro Flask, Clinique Online, and Verbo, just to name a few. There are so many big stores and brands that you're already buying from. But don't miss this major deal. It's a limited time only with eight days of these high cashback rates, so you can save more than usual. Membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you can get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind, wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system. With fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. 
There's no safe like Simply Safe. The community was gripped by the macabre discovery of this ivory soap corpse, wondering who this woman could be and who could be behind her murder. Meanwhile, over the course of the next 18 months, Sheriff Charles Kemp, his deputy Carl Kirk, Clallam County prosecuting attorney Ralph Smith, and criminologist Hollis Fultz teamed up in an attempt to identify the body. Three women were currently reported missing in the area, all of whom happened to match the description of what the Lady of the Lake probably looked like when she was alive. But the team gradually ruled out each of these women as a possibility, and all three cases were resolved. Thus, the Lady of the Lake remained a Jane Doe. But Dr. Cavini had one more avenue that they had not yet explored. Upon examining her mouth, it was discovered that she had a bridge of six teeth implanted, a fairly recent procedure that likely would have been memorable to a dentist. Acting on this distinctive dental work, authorities printed out more than 15,000 flyers with pictures of this bridge and information about the victim, distributing them to dentists all over the country. Now, while they waited for tips to trickle in, they examined other aspects of the victim's life, building a profile on her. So based on the bunion that she had developed on her foot, they believed that she had worked on her feet and was either employed as a waitress or at a laundromat in the area. They determined that she had also had her hair done shortly before her death and disposal. So police ran down the list of local salons, hoping to pin her down with a description to the salon employees. Like they were at work trying to find her name. But still, Nothing. The Lady of the Lake was buried in an unmarked grave in Port Angeles, Washington, which again is where her autopsy had been conducted, but police were determined to find answers in her unsettling case. Pursuing the possibility that she had been working at a restaurant, investigators contacted the United States Culinary Alliance, which is a union for chefs and food service employees. The secretary and treasurer of this organization, Edgar Thompson, came forward with a few female members who had dropped out of the alliance and let their membership lapse. And one of these women was Hallie Illingworth. After joining the organization and working at a restaurant for a number of years, she had stopped showing up for work, never transferred her union status to another organization, and never made a formal request for withdrawal from the union. So for the first time, police had this tangible lead. They reached out to a sister of Hallie's named Lois, who lived in Walla Walla, Washington, to inquire about Hallie's whereabouts. And according to Lois, she hadn't heard from her sister since shortly before Christmas of 1937, which was now four years earlier. Lois detailed the story that she was given by Hallie's husband, Monty, who had since moved from that area, that Hallie had fled to Alaska with a naval officer that she had just met. Lois also confirmed that Hallie had been the recipient of a bridge in her mouth a few years before she had gone missing, making multiple connections to their Jane Doe. But at this point, Monty's whereabouts were unknown. 
So feeling like they were onto something, investigators reached out to more of Hallie's nine brothers and sisters, including her sister, Cammie. Now, Cammie pinpointed the exact last time that her family heard from Hallie, which was in the form of a postcard dated December 21st, 1937, the last day she had shown up for work. Cammie also put them in contact with Hallie's dentist back in South Dakota, and thus, the final connection between the Lady of the Lake and Hallie Illingworth came through. Dr. Albert J. McDowell, a dentist in Falkton, South Dakota, confirmed that he had performed this exact procedure on a young woman years prior. The Lady of the Lake was exhumed and her dental records were compared with the dentist's work. And it was a match. And the remains were confirmed to belong to Hallie Illingworth. So after 15 months of hard work, police had officially identified their Jane Doe. Investigators now not only had an identification, but also a murder suspect, Hallie's husband, Monty. While they put out feelers all over the country for Monty's location, they continued their focus on a local investigation, garnering more evidence to stack against Hallie's estranged husband. They located a friend of Hallie's named Jesse Hudson, who was working in the kitchen of a nearby lumber camp. Jesse elaborated on the volatile nature of the Illingworths' marriage, claiming Hallie had once told her that they would one day kill each other. And Jesse also remembered that a hotel owner had once caught them in the midst of a violent altercation in which Monty was on the bed standing over Hallie, who was crying and moaning in pain. So after tracing Monty to California due to his work records, the Washington District Attorney enlisted the help of authorities in Long Beach to track him down. An extensive search ensued, and Monty was located in Long Beach, California, which is just south of Los Angeles. There, he was living with his mom Florence, or Flossie, and Eleanor, who he referred to as his wife after having been granted the divorce that he sought on grounds of desertion back in 1938 after Hallie disappeared. Ironically, the lawyer who assisted Monty in his divorce was also assisting in finding him to bring him to justice for what he was believed to have done. On October 26, 1941, Monty Illingworth was arrested and taken into custody by Los Angeles Sheriff's deputies. When questioned, he initially stuck to his original story, you know, that he was the true victim of the situation after his wife had run out on him for another man. But when investigators pressed him about his timeline and whereabouts on the day of Hallie's disappearance, Monty began to panic, realizing that police had more incriminating information than they were letting on. He then attempted to break down that last evening for them, explaining that he had been with a friend named Tony Enos that night. Monty claimed that he and Tony had been at a rowdy party on the evening of December 21st, and that when he had returned early in the morning hours of December 22nd, Hallie had picked a fight with him before storming off. But when police located Tony Enos back in Washington, he had a slightly different version of events. Tony said that they had been at a party together until around 3.30 a.m. when he had dropped Monty back off at home. The next morning, around 9 a.m., he ran into Monty again near a bank in Port Angeles. 
Monty claimed that he was en route to drop Hallie off at the ferry boat dock in Port Ludlow, which is about an hour from Port Angeles. He told Tony that she was leaving town, and this made three different accounts of that evening that Monty had alleged. Now convinced of his involvement, Monty Illingworth was charged with the first-degree murder of his wife and extradited back to Washington to stand trial. On February 24, 1942, his trial began and became an instant media sensation in the area. Like coverage of Monty's arrest and the subsequent approach to the highly anticipated trial even overshadowed the massive amount of media coverage of World War II at the time. Community members even gathered outside the Clallam County Superior Court hoping to witness the spectacle, and the courtroom was packed with some very curious onlookers. Monty relied on his old defense of feigning ignorance, but with a new twist. He claimed that the dead woman wasn't even Hallie. He did admit to having a fight when they had last seen each other, but claimed that she had then stormed out of the apartment to go to work on the morning of December 22nd. When he returned to their apartment, she was apparently nowhere to be found and then never returned. Monty stood by his story that she had frequently threatened to leave him and that, fueled by their altercation, she had run off with another man and was still somewhere alive. He also denied being abusive, but said that Hallie made a habit of hitting him. But her co-workers testified on her behalf, remembering that they had frequently spotted her with cuts and bruises. Also, for him to claim that this body wasn't her, as if he knows for a fact that she wasn't murdered, is so fishy. Like, he is just reaching here. Yeah, and then acting like the victim and being like, oh, she was the one that was hitting me. It's like, dude, you're such a piece of shit. Yeah, and changing your story like, nobody is believing you, Monty. Well, Hallie's dentist, Dr. McDowell, also testified for her, confirming with certainty that the dental work found on the recovered body was Hallie's. And multiple of Hallie's friends identified the green dress that she had been wearing as belonging to Hallie. But the true confirmation of Monty's guilt lay in the rope that Hallie had been tied with. A local shopkeeper testified that on the morning of December 22, 1937, Monty had come in asking for a 50-foot length of thick manila rope used to tie boats to a dock. Monty said that he was towing a vehicle and asked to borrow the rope from the shopkeeper with the promise that he would return it later, but he never did. When investigators compared the rope found around Hallie to the rope that was sold in the shop, they were a match. And investigators had that rope to thank for releasing Hallie into the waters of Lake Crescent as she only floated to the surface after the rope began to deteriorate due to being submerged in water for so long. On March 5th, 1942, a jury deliberated for four hours in the case of Monty Illingworth's involvement and ultimately found him guilty of Hallie's death. He was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison, sent to serve a sentence in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington, seven hours away from Lake Crescent. 
But somehow, Monty was able to be released for good behavior after serving only nine years of his sentence. So he was paroled in 1951 at the age of 44, and he moved back to California. There, he married again, this time to a woman named Genevieve, and they even had a daughter named Patricia. Monty eventually died in Los Alamitos, California on November 5th, 1974, at the age of 67, which is 30 years longer than Hallie got to live. This obviously seemed like a pretty shallow victory for Hallie and her loved ones, especially her daughter, who was only 17 years old when she disappeared. But although she was orphaned at a young age, Doris went on to live what appeared to be a very happy, normal life, marrying a man named Marshall, who she shared two sons and a daughter with until her death in 2011. So what really happened to Hallie that morning? Because Monty refused to give any details or admit any wrongdoing, investigators believe that her murder was not premeditated and that it was like a spur-of-the-moment crime of passion, one that had been threatening to bubble over for the entire year-and-a-half span of their relationship. Investigator Hollis Fultz maintained that a terrible alcohol-fueled fight broke out between the two in the early morning hours of December 22nd. And then when Monty began to come to grips with what he had done, he knew that the lake was the safest place to dispose of her. Bringing her to the trunk of his car, he then drove to a nearby resort, which is now the Log Cabin Resort, where he covered her in blankets, tied her with the rope that he had borrowed, and then weighed her down before dumping her remains in Lake Crescent. With his faltering stories and multiple stops, it's kind of surprising that no one caught on to what he was doing. Not to mention the fact that he likely rowed her out in a boat and dropped her into the lake in broad daylight. Yeah, like this grown woman wrapped in blankets and rope. Yeah. Unseen. Right. At the time of the trial, many locals actually believed that Monty had not acted alone and that he may have had help from a friend or even his new partner, Eleanor, who seemed to just be waiting in the wings for Hallie to make her exit. But this, along with many other aspects of the nearly 100-year-old murder, are details that we will likely never know. so much everybody for listening to this episode of going west yes thank you guys so much for listening to this episode and on friday we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into such an interesting and of course devastating story there are a few photos associated with it so if you want to check those out and photos from all of our other episodes that we cover um, head on over to our socials instagram at going west podcast twitter at going west pod and we're also on facebook and also, don't forget to check out Elder's Coffee. It is honestly so amazing. The packaging is beautiful. The flavors <laughs> are magnificent. Buy yourself some today or buy some for a friend or a family member. <laughs> Thank you, Heath. Remember, I am offering a discount code. If you want to try, uh, the code is going west. We have coconut lavender flavored coffee. It's all naturally flavored. Strawberry scone, peppermint bark, and cinnamon bun. They are so, so good. So if you'd like to support me in that way, please go check it out. Elderscoffeeco.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We love you and we'll see you on Friday. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. 